7 Radio Network, broadcasting from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur, because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is Wednesday the 29th. I hope you're having a great week and getting ready for December. Can you believe how quickly time flies? We have a fantastic show for you today. First up, Cedric Leggett. He is the trucking king. Boy, does he blow me away. I am so impressed with him. And then after that, K. Scott Griffith and I will talk about my favorite topic to avoid risk. You know, I hate risk and oh, great conversation. Anyway, let's get started with the show. I'm very excited to introduce my first guest. His name is Cedric Leggett. He is also known as the trucking king. 10 years ago, he had not much to show for his business success and started over. And in the last decade, he and his brother have built an amazing trucking business. It is an automated trucking business where you can invest. He has grown from one truck to over 20 today, and it's throwing off a pretty impressive uh, dividend. Cedric, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. And you're a damn good dresser, I gotta say. My God, you put on the clothes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Actually, my wife, my wife dresses me, so I can't take the credit for that. But thank you. Well, my goodness, she has some taste. Uh, I, uh, my wife dresses me too, but uh, I don't look anything as good as you do. My goodness, <laughs> those are some nice clothes you wear. Do you dress every day, or are there days where she lets you just off and wear some sweats? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's days I could just uh, wear sweats and things like that. Um, but but um, yeah, it's not dressed like that every day. All right. Tell us about 10 years ago. What was going on? Yeah. So it was OK. So it was actually uh, longer further back than 10 years ago. So it was around maybe. Um, so first, I'll say this. So I first started learning about the trucking industry. It was about 20 years ago. My cousin. Both of my older brothers, they uh, got into the trucking industry. They started, um, they bought trucks. So I started learning. And fast forward, um, I started um, on my own as far as my own business. And I'll just be honest with you. Um, I, I did not listen to them. I did not want to listen to them. Um, I was the youngest child growing up, um, had four other older siblings and i was just tired of people telling me what to do and i had my parents telling me what to do i had my four older siblings telling me what to do and listen i was tired and so starting a new business i i was a know-it-all you know so and i just crashed and almost burned and failed miserably um and i had to go through the tough times and i had to learn the hard way 
Um, I was hanging on literally by a thread. And I'm not just saying that, like, I mean, uh, if you blow hard, that would have been it. It would have been over. And so um, I, I didn't listen, had to start over from negative. Um, and I like to tell people that that's very important. I didn't say I started over from zero because starting over from zero is g- good sometimes, especially <laughs> where I was. But <laughs> yeah, I, hey, listen, I can laugh about it now, so, but it was not a laughing matter then. But, but yeah, I had to, you know, went through a lot of t- tough times, some personal things came and hit me in my life, and then also the business stuff. So it was just a mixture just coming on at one time. And, that put me in a situation I had to start all the way over from negative and I just refused to give up. I refused to give up. I started listening more. I stopped uh, being the know-it-all person and also I started to you know, gain knowledge myself, uh, uh, to pay more attention about what I'm learning and, and, to, and learning more. Um, I, I was really focused on that. So and that propelled me uh, on a different path. And so, in other words, I like to say it, I, I humbled down. <laughs> and when you humble down a lot, like you will be surprised at the things that you can learn and the things you can do and how your paths can change. And so that, that's what happened to me. And, and once I humbled down, I was able to just get back going again and I was able to start, uh, first of all, become successful with my own stuff um, and started making money, making decent money. I was out on the road driving myself. I went and got my CDL license. So I'm not that person that don't know trucking or never have done it. That's not me. I actually have a class A CDL license still right now today. And so I was out doing it myself driving OTR all over and um, I made a transition from out on the road driving to consulting, training and education and I started helping other people that were either on the path that I was on or they were headed down that path or they could just be started from scratch from ground zero and just say, hey, I want to start up. Um, I want to get going. And so Started doing that. And then, of course, from there, it turned into um, helping investors, you know, investors like, hey, I work a nine to five job and I don't have time to run the trucking business. And so um, it was back about 15 years ago, we helped our first investor um, with automation. And so we basically set everything up and we managed the business and, you know, they can see returns and they can see profits from it so that's kind of everything in a, in a nutshell all right fascinating story and thank you for your honesty and opening up you know so many people don't like to say i had a tough time but you know most <laughs> yeah. of us entrepreneurs do have tough times so we appreciate yes. the honesty cedric tell us a little bit about the trucking industry how is mm-hmm. it doing right now is it Good times mm-hmm. or bad times for the industry? Give us mm-hmm. sort of the macro of the industry. Yeah. Yeah. So so currently, right now, as a whole, okay, it's not like horrible, bad, like what some people try to make it to be. 
Um, all at the same time, I'm being honest here again. I'm not saying it's all peaches and glory and good like it was two years, three years, five years ago, five years ago. So, so it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's okay. The key thing to it is knowledge, information, being set up the right way, having um, a good team in your corner. That's like the key to it. Um, because if you, if you had that, you can still make some okay profits. Are you going to make the profits we were making three years ago? No, not going to lie to you. You're not. Not right now, you're not. Uh, but can you still make good profits right now? Yeah, you can still make some decent, nice profits right now. So, so, but yeah, currently right now, it's, it's just all about before, uh, you know, you could get away with a lot of mistakes uh, because the profit margins was, was higher. For example, two, three, five years ago, we had clients, I mean, it was nothing for them to produce 5K to 8K in profits uh, per month. Like that was normal. So if mistakes are made and I'm doing higher profits, well, I can hide and cover a lot of that, you know, because if I, if I really made uh, 6K in profits and I got 2,000 worth of mistakes, I'm still clearing 4K. I'm like, okay, but, but now you, you like your, your, your mistakes margin is like, it's like literally zero. So, because if you are doing 2K to 4K in profits right now, currently, like you don't really have room for error because if let's say 3K is your profit for the month of uh, September and you have two, three mistakes or problems like that can like really wipe it down to zero or 200 or 100. So, so it's all about knowing, getting information, knowledge, being teamed up and paired with uh, some, Cedric, someone. Let me interrupt. What are you talking yeah. about this profit? Are you talking about the owner of the truck or the driver of the truck? What percent owner. of owners are actually the drivers? Is that a, a rare thing? Yeah. Yeah. So we have both. Our, uh, some of our clients are what we call owner operators. And what that means is the owner drives the truck themselves then we also have investors to where they don't drive and they have a driver driving okay so we have we have both groups we have both what's groups. a driver make these days uh these days uh driver like things have changed um minimum um around 1300 that's like the lowest like if you try to get a driver to drive for like less than 1300 like you're going to have a problem. And then drivers are making up to 2000 per week, 1300 per week, and then up to 2000 per week. Okay. Like we have, we have some drivers that make 1800 to 2k per week. Now it depends on what you're driving. Um, if you're driving a drive in, which drive in is like you're, you, you may have paper tower in the back. You may have some Nike shoes in the back. Um, versus if you're driving a flatbed, uh, which you're going to have maybe a um, fifth, um, uh, 25,000 pound HVAC unit that's going to the new Walmart store that's going to go on top of the building um, on the flatbed truck. So flatbed drivers, of course, make, make more. So anywhere between $1,300 to $2,000 per, per week. All right. And... I mean, at that rate, they should be able to invest over time. No. 
You mean the driver? Yeah. Why can't the driver end up owning their own truck after 10 years? Some, some do. Some do. But listen, it's, it's, it's the reality of this thing out here. The things that we say, it's not always reality. And then also the things that we say, yeah, it's easy to say versus actually doing. But yes, we have a program to where we encourage the drivers to own their own trucks. And, and again, some of them do. We have some of them that are that do very good. And then we have some of them to where they will probably be a driver for the rest of their life. And there's no knock against drivers or a driver. It's just the truth. Right. I mean, it, it's just the truth. It's just how it, it's just how it is. I remember several years ago, freight matching was one of these hot buzzwords that they would use computers to find freight and the the closest driver and match it all up. And it would save Mm -hmm. the industry and save 4 billion miles a year of driving. What happened to Mm -hmm. that? Why did that not work out? Well, I I don't know the ins and the outs of it. Um, but Um, I think one of the biggest things is the, first of all, it was a, a great idea. Okay. The concept was great, but if I had to guess, um, I would say it has to do with a lot of other things that happened. So the matching part was fine. That part was fine. But what, one of the things that we saw was the actual, rate part of it i give an example in some cases by the time it got chopped down by the time it went through two or three hands it was chopped down and of course the driver wasn't satisfied or the owner operator wasn't satisfied that was one of the biggest things uh, that we saw um and if someone can work on that problem but the concept the idea was really 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 great um, and then it's still around now. It's just not as hot as it was before. You know, I actually got, I know the guy, Cedric, that owns the patent, the guy who thought of that originally. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And he actually hired me to write a book and, okay. uh, biggest blow, biggest business failure I've ever personally seen. I mean, I, mm. I'll tell you the, the backstory off air. Mm-hmm. I'll tell the story on mm-hmm. air, but we just don't have time, but they yeah. messed it up. They blew it. Yeah. I've never seen a group of people have more going for them and succeed less. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah. tell us about your business though. So I come to you and yep. I have a hundred grand. What mm-hmm. happens? Yeah, so um, it just depends how you come, <laughs> or, or let me rephrase that. It depends what group you are in. Okay, if you are an investor, you have a hundred grand. Um, we do a discovery with you. It's called a discovery call, and basically, it's just what it says. We discover what you want to do, your ideas and your goals, and things like that. So once we listen to you, then what we do, we take that, chew it up, eat it up. And then we put it in our so-called machine, not a literal machine. I'm just <laughs> being funny here. Right, I get we put it, it in yeah. our machine. And your then black we box, it. your secret black box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. And so we'll, we'll spit it back out to you once it goes through our, our machine. And uh, sometimes it fits what you said and what you want. Sometimes it does not. 
And I, the best example I can give to you um, is when people come to us like that, most of them don't know anything about trucking or very little. So they have a lot of things, ideas, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And sometimes we have to bring them, you know, down and back to earth and say, okay, well now let us explain to you how the trucking industry works currently because it changes, you know, again, what it was three years ago is totally different than what it was now. So we, we do that discovery call. And then from that point, we try to reach common ground with you as best as possible. And I'll be honest with you. We have some people that come to us. I mean, multimillionaires and uh, it's like, Oh, we can't get on that common ground. And you know, what, because what, they're thinking, the the hold i mean what's the the argument over cedric i don't yeah. understand i come to you and say i want eight percent return and you say i can't get eight mm -hmm. i can get five and you go okay well, let's settle for six and a half. i mean what's the argument about i don't get it yeah so it's 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 the, the biggest thing is like i say misconception all right so for example maybe they've heard from their buddies or uh on tv or just some unrealistic source or a lot of times there's other people that don't truly know what they're doing in the trucking industry. Like they fake it really good. <laughs> like they're great advertisers. They're great marketing people, but they don't have the back history, the background uh, like we have. And, and, and of course there are some people that have great backgrounds. So long story short, maybe they went and got some unrealistic numbers uh, goals or whatever. And so we have to, bring them back down and say like where did you get that from like for example well i'm looking to make eight to ten thousand in profits per per month one truck and so we're like well we're going to be honest with you up front we're not going to lie to you that's not going to happen right now now will that come back we don't think it'll come back when we don't know so what do can a truck make now a truck right now currently the market that we're in right now if you are an investor on the low side, 2K per month, on the top end high side, around 4K per month. And That's currently right now. How much does a truck cost these days? When you say a truck, you don't buy the the long part with you just the buy trailer. The, talk, the engine. The yeah, so either either or the track, it's called the track. So the tractor truck and the trailer are two two separate things but so both it, it's just just depends like some of our clients buy the truck and the trailer because they want to own everything and that's okay some of our clients say hey well i, I can buy a tractor truck that's not a problem but if you're asking me to buy a 56 dollars trailer now ah that that might be a little tough for me but it's no problem because in most cases we have trailers that they can rent or lease or low, low, low price starting at like $190 per per week. So about $780 per month, which is a very good rate. So it doesn't matter if you want to buy your own trailer or if you want to rent or lease one. It, it, it doesn't matter. So, uh, but yeah, that's that's basically how, how it works. Um, you know, and some people, they, again, they have this unrealistic stuff burnt in their head and they're not budging from it. Well, I, I was told that I can make 10000 uh, Not now. We were doing that two years ago and three years ago. We were, but not now. What changed so, from two or three years ago? Why have the rates gone down so much? 
Yeah, so trucking as a whole, as an entire industry, um, has went down, first of all. And it was just like some of the other stuffs or similar. I'm not going to say just like the similar to some of the other stuff. The bubble burst is what happened. When you had COVID, they came. COVID just really messed up a lot of stuff. What happened is the rates were really, really high. Why? Because the freight needed to get moved at all costs because a lot of drivers would sit home and collect the $800, dollars $1,000 unemployment. Right, no, I'm yeah. not coming to drive the truck. I'll just sit and collect the money. So the rates were really high. And then what happened, people went into this panic mode uh, from an economic standpoint. Like, I'm, I need passive income. I need to change jobs. I need to make more money. And trucking was like a go-to. It was a go-to, and then you had a, I mean, a lot, a lot of people that got into it, flocked into it. They did not know what they were doing. They maybe watched 12 YouTube videos and went to Google University and YouTube University and like, I'm an expert now, let's go. And that's like in a nutshell of some of the things that happened. And so they got out here, didn't know what they were doing. Uh, it, was, it was overcrowded. Uh, rates were down, um, shippers, brokers, and things like that. And so they started punishing uh, the entire... And I'm not just putting on shippers and brokers, so please don't misunderstand me. I'm just kind of telling you something that happened. But they started to punish certain people or certain... Uh, or the industry as a whole, for example, you like now, you can't come in as a new carrier by yourself with your own trucking authority. Like, you will go out of business two years ago no problem three years ago no problem seven years ago no problem so a mixture of things like that and um it just caused a lot of issues plus uh you got um a lot of economics involved in it also as a whole like our country government just it's a it's a mixture of different things it's not like one thing but it's a mixture mixture of different things that cause the rates to to go down uh the housing market you know uh, at, at one time the housing market came back it was booming uh houses were being built like crazy uh but then once that happens you know freight is not moving as much and so what happens it it uh, drops down the uh, trucking industry so it's, it's a mixture of things it's just a mixture of things but those are just some of the, the things that caused it to to drop down didn't one of the Biggest trucking companies go bankrupt a month or so ago, yeah. invested yeah, in yellow. by Bill Gates and stuff, I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what yellow, company yeah. was they, that? What happened there? Yellow. yellow. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, they did. Um, and if you're from a logistical stuff now, I don't work for Yellow. I don't have any inside information on Yellow, but. Um, from a logistical standpoint, if you're not, if you're not number one, set up properly from a logistical standpoint, and if you, if you are not maintaining that and continuing that, like pretty much any trucking company or any other type of company is gonna, is, is gonna go under. And, um, I don't like saying certain things about certain people because I, I just don't really believe in that but uh, their management team um, there were some issues there also 
So I'll just say it like right. that uh, without like really going further. But it's like you can see it for yourself. It's all public. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, those are some of the things that that happen. Yeah, just yeah. Sometimes people think, oh, this massive company. Uh, no, it doesn't matter. You got to have a good, strong management team. You got to have good, strong logistic, a good, strong logistical operation. Uh, because think about it, tr- there's like no other industry or no other category as far as logistics. Um, like that trucking may be the number one thing as far as like the logistical pieces. You gotta like know what you're doing. It's because it's not a game and it's not a joke. And if you don't know, if you don't have a good logistical foundation, like even one truck won't make it. Burst and, and so think about 2,000 trucks or 5,000 trucks. Like, you got to have a good logistical foundation. How do you find the loads? How do you make sure that your trucks are always full? Where does the, the customer yeah. come from on the other side? Yeah. So, um, me personally, um, one thing that I learned in business, our dad, um, he, he was a, um, small entrepreneur, and that's I, I think that's kind of how where we get it from. But anyway, long story short, he would always teach us about people and how to deal with people and how to uh, treat people and treat people nice, even if they may treat you wrong, still treat them nice and build relationships. So, to answer your question, I built relationships way back when I got into this, and at the time, and and I I I, I, I ate a lot of crow also. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you, but when I ate the crow back then, now it's like you're eating sweet candy now. And I'll tell you what I mean mean by that. Like when I first started into this, I dealt with companies. Sometimes I didn't, you know, I didn't think the pay was what I wanted. And, you know, they wouldn't budge and they were like, hey, you can take it or leave it. Long story short, I was trying to build a relationship. I did it. Well, fast forward to now. Some of the same companies that I hauled loads for 15 years ago, I still work with those companies right now, today, and I pass a lot of the work and the freight off to my clients. So to answer your question, uh, we have built up clients over the years, um, shippers um, we've built up over the years that we work with for a long time but uh but yeah and then there's load boards out there also um you know just depending on what type of trailer you have it may be dat load board it may be truck stop load board it may be abc one two three load board um so it just depends on what type of trailer you have but the important thing is building customers and just like any other business it's just like if you're going to start a, uh, a daycare you got to get those parents to trust you they're not going to drop their kid off to your daycare if they don't trust you and you don't build some type of relationship with them. So, you know, trucking is the same way. You got to build relationships and sometimes you have to eat crow, but that crow will turn into sweet candy. I am a living example of that. I love that. I love that attitude. Cedric, I just saw the, the time we have run out of it. Unbelievably, boy, that went fast. I could learn all day from you. I still have a hundred questions. How do we find out more? <laughs> yeah. Follow you online. Yeah, you can just go to my website. It's just like my name, CedricLeggett.com. Or um, you can go to 
Uh, my Facebook page um, is facebook.com forward slash Cedric Leggett, C-O-M. And of course, um, Instagram is the same thing, Cedric Leggett, um, C-O-M. And you can follow us and, and um, send us questions, get, uh, schedule a call with us, and we'll be glad to help you out. Fantastic. Cedric, fascinating story. Congratulations on what you have achieved. And I Thank hope you. you have a great holiday season coming up. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll be right back. We are back. And again, thank you so very much for being with us. Very excited to talk to my next guest. He is dealing with one of my least favorite topics, risk. Please welcome K. Scott Griffith. He is author of a new book called The Leader's Guide to Managing Risk, a proven method to build resilience and reliability. He is the founder of SG Collaborative Solutions. They are a risk management firm. He is had a really interesting career, started off in charge of uh, safety. He was the chief safety officer for American airlines. And since then he's gone out on his own. He was the creator of the collaborative high reliability and collaborative, just culture programs. I don't know what those are, but we will ask him about that. They are used uh, all sorts of impressive places like Harvard's hospital and places like that. Scott, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you, Jim. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So when you talk about risk here, are you talking about startup risk or uh, crisis risk? What's the risk we're worried about here? Yeah. So, so um, Jim, the, the, the term risk here doesn't, doesn't, isn't limited to financial risk or startup risk, although it can, it can definitely be applied there. Uh, we're talking about just risk in everyday life and in everyday business. And as you said, we don't promote people being risk averse and looking at your book and, and the work that you've done over the years, we're suggesting that people can be risk intelligent. All right. What does that mean? Risk intelligent. That's a new one for me. Yeah. Risk intelligence. So every, every human being has uh, situational awareness and we see the world through the lenses of our experiences. So when we engage in certain types of behavior, whether they're risk-taking or otherwise, we get a result. And then that result teaches us a lesson. And, and sometimes we get good results, even great results, with very risky behavior. So think about driving a car. Statistics show that on any given day in America, about 81% of us are driving over the speed limit. Now, we may also be talking on a cell phone, and some people may be driving drunk. But and putting on makeup time, and shaving. <laughs> absolutely. That those, those behaviors take place too. But when we get to where we're going without incident, which we do most of the time, the human brain says, well, I can do this and it's okay. It's never happened to me before. Those same principles can apply in business. When you go out and you create a startup, you, uh, as you've described, it doesn't necessarily require passion, nor does it require taking a lot of risk. But it does take situational awareness, understanding the market, the products that you produce or the services you produce, and seeing ahead. And oftentimes, businesses measure their success by looking at results, whether they're financial or market share. And those can be good indicators in the short term, but 
the best way to assess the way a business is running is to see below the waterline. In other words, if you're looking for sustainable success, it's not just the short-term profits. It's the ability to do what you do reliably over an extended period of time. All right. So when we start up a business, and then we'll move on from that situation, how do we uh, use this situational awareness to make good decisions? What does that process look like? How do I actually become managing my risk? So I developed something uh, called the sequence of reliability. And it's a, I'm going to use a geeky term here. Um, it's called sociotechnical science. And what that means is, is that any business is a combination of people working inside systems and processes and perhaps using technologies. But that linkage between the humans and the systems is called sociotechnical. So the sequence of reliability starts with first seeing and understanding the risk in front of you, then managing your systems to reliability, and then managing people, and then finally building the organization for sustainment. And as simple as those four steps sound, a lot of organizations, in fact, most organizations get it wrong. They start with the people side or the organizational side, and they overlooked seeing and understanding risk and building the reliable systems. All right. As a business, how do I handle risk? What should I do? Assume that I'm in a non-risky business, like selling gizzards or something. You know, there's no risk, <laughs> no inherent risk there, unless someone chokes. But you know, that's with any food. Do I even need to be worried about risk in a situation like that for a non-risky, quote-unquote, business? Well, risk is relative, isn't it? So uh, I've spent my career working in what, what's called the high-consequence industry, so places where mistakes can cause catastrophic outcomes in the blink of an eye, a plane crash, a, a wrong site surgery, a law enforcement officer, in the blink of an eye, making pulling the trigger. In those types of endeavors that we call high consequence, the, the physics behind it, the sociotechnical physics, are the same as running a business. So every business is high consequence at some level, the people whose jobs depend on it, uh, the products that you serve. So the ideas that were developed in those high consequence industries as they translate into the everyday businesses can be the same. You're still managing people and you're still managing inside systems. So the way for a business to succeed, if you're looking at financial success, is to uh, assess the landscape, to understand the factors that influence the market, uh, to understand the factors that influence your product acquisition and delivery, uh, supply chain distributions, IT management, all those technical details that are required to set up a business and make sure that you can see below the waterline. Don't just look at the tip of the iceberg ahead. And what about a very risky business, say running a crypto hedge fund or something like that? We have the trial right now of this Sam Bankman Freed character. Uh, by the time you listen to this, we'll probably know if he's guilty or not. They didn't even have a risk group or a, a CEO, uh, you know, someone in like your position, a chief manager of risk. They didn't even have that or compliance. Is this a good example of someone who just 
is not looking at the situation around them? Well, I think throughout history, there have been people who have been charismatic and tried to sell the public a, um, a product or a service. In situations where lives are affected, if you look at the housing market or, in this case, uh, crypto or Bitcoin type activities, th these are very risky products. And now the question becomes, what, what do we in society uh, do to oversee those types of ris risky ventures? And so now you get into the interplay between business and, 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 and the government or public-private partnerships. What do we expect of our government to oversee those types of risky activities? Well, on the highways, we build in agencies like the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Uh, in, in the Treasury Department, we oversee financial transactions. So then it becomes a question of what does the public expect? Uh, but as you point out, companies like SAMS were not really set up to uh, be transparent to the public. <laughs> well, it sounds like you just convicted him then. <laughs> well, I don't know the details, and I certainly wouldn't speak without knowing more about it. But from what I've read, uh, I think there was a lack of transparency, and that, that is one of the first steps in being reliable. Yeah, I've read a little bit about it, too, and I will go ahead and convict him. Um, I will go <laughs> okay. ahead and predict that he is going to be found guilty and given a very long prison term because I think what he's done is pretty egregious. Uh, I uh, am kind of shocked that he got away with it as long as he did. Well, I, I mentioned these two things that you yeah. developed, the Collaborative High Reliability and Collaborative Just Culture programs. Explain those two, please. Okay, so, so the term high reliability is a term that's often used in industries like aviation and um, the power generation industries. It's starting to become something that uh, organizations in law enforcement are paying attention to, but just culture is a component of high reliability. And the term just culture, the, the word just derives from the word justice. And we're looking to be fair, equitable, and consistent in how organizations treat their people. Now, that's important because any organization that deals with public service, like a hospital, uh, the, the, the people that are in the best position to see the day-to-day -day risks are usually on the front line. So the nurses, the physicians, the housekeepers that are on the front line. I think this is probably true of any business public-facing. But to be able to identify the risk below the waterline or what's below the surface is to have people feeling safe and comfortable and coming forward. And that requires something like a just culture. Our term for it is collaborative just culture, which is a set of standards that I developed over the years for organizations to be able to document and monitor measure success in those areas. All right. Interesting. What does a hospital hire you to do? What uh, is it dealing with the crisis? Some of your best clients are, are amazing, very impressive hospital systems. Why would they hire you? Because what we offer is a state-of-the-art science, if you will, to how they can improve their healthcare delivery platforms. And if you look at a hospital, it's more than just patient safety or people, a collection of people and systems producing outcomes for patients. 
in order to be a reliable hospital or any reliable business, there are a small set of attributes that you would say are necessary to achieve in order to be reliable. So if you're a patient in a hospital, certainly you expect to be treated safely. Uh, you also expect that hospital to respect your privacy. Uh, you expect that hospital to treat you equitably and sometimes with compassion at all times, actually. And if you're going to be successful, you have to be able to pay attention to all of those attributes. And the people and the skills necessary to run an IT department, for example, may be very different than the skills that doctors and nurses and pharmacists have. So you can say you're a patient safety organization, very safe hospital, but if a cyber attack shuts you down, on that day, you won't be reliable. What do I do then on that day? Well, you build in reliability, which involves resilience. So you look at what the risks are. You put in system designs. There's some technical terms like barriers, redundancies, and recovery strategies. These are principles that arose from the engineering sciences, like the one that I grew up in in aviation. Aviation, like other industries, including nuclear power, are very steeped in how to build safe and reliable systems because of the catastrophic potential outcomes. Other organizations like uh, healthcare and EMS and, and um, law enforcement have been around much longer, but don't necessarily have an engineering mindset. Now, the science of medicine, which is you know, a deep science, is very different than the science of engineering. And then, of course, all of these industries, what they have in common is that people are working inside these systems. So we really blend the science between engineering design, human behavior, and then we add a third element uh, that comes from the legal systems or the law. And that's where the term just culture comes in, because the way we hold people accountable in the legal systems is really very different than the way we should be managing people inside a business or an organization. And a couple examples of that, Jim, the law, by definition, isn't designed to manage risk. It's really there to do other things. It provides equitable response or we bring remedies to harm, but it's a poor way to manage risk. It's not the way a parent should parent a child. It's not the way a teacher should teach a student. And it's certainly not the way an organization should respond to behaviors in the workplace. Being outcome biased uh, you only get standing in the in the courts unless you can show harm. So just as one example that's pretty dramatic to me is that the way we manage drunk driving on the on the roadways, we wait until there's a crash or we have a, a police officer that happens to see a driver driving erratically. But on average, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says that for every drunk driver arrested, on average, they've driven drunk 88 times previously without having been caught. Well, that's a terrible way to run a business, waiting for bad things to happen. All right. So what are some of the preemptive steps that uh, a normal business should be taking? One of the things that uh, has come about uh, since the pandemic is the, the high rates of reported employee burnout. And, of course, in some businesses, there's been the, the challenge of whether to call people back to work or to allow them to work remotely. And of course, that will vary according to the type of business. But what we see, even in these high-performing institutions, like you, some of those that you mentioned that we're working with earlier on, 
uh, we see a relatively high rate of burnout. So one of the risks that any business can face is the, the way the people perform. And it, it takes a very um, specific way to manage people to get them to come forward and report. So most people, at least those professionals that have licenses, are loath to come forward and report a risk because fear of either losing their license or losing their job. So we've seen many industries where professionals that, that have those licenses uh, are reluctant to come forward. Well, there are strategies to get them forward, but they have to be strategies that are well-defined. So that's the program that I developed in the aviation industry in 1994 known as ASAP, which stands for Aviation Safety Action Program. It was a program that was designed to get pilots, air traffic controllers, mechanics, and ground workers and dispatchers to come forward without fear of reprisal or punishment. So what we did was we, we, we produced a sea change in the industry where people previously only reported what they could not hide. They did their jobs. They did a great job. But then as they encountered risk throughout the day, they wouldn't report it because of fear of, of reprisal. Well, we changed that paradigm. And since that time, the U.S. aviation industry has achieved a 95% reduction in the fatal accident rate. Now, that's specific to one industry. We call that an evidence-based approach. But the same principles that got those astonishing results in aviation can and are being applied in other sectors of the economy. So we think that the challenge is, is that knowing the differences between those high-consequence environments and the environment that every business faces. But at the end of the day, it's still people working inside systems. And when you can understand the underlying principles behind those, we can manage both of those better. So how do I tell my employees that it's okay to rat each other out? I mean, how do I tell my employees that it's okay to tell me if someone's not doing something correctly? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. I had a conversation with a, um, a healthcare executive at a large institution, and he said to me, well, my employees come to me every year at the holiday Christmas party. They come up and they tell me what's wrong with the system. And I said, well, that's probably not the best way to see risk day in and day out. That's a very Japanese because solution. I only tell the truth when I'm drunk. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, that's the Japanese standard. That's how Japanese business works. And that I just heard the same thing. The only time I'm truthful is when I'm drunk at the Christmas party. <laughs> well, that, again, that's once a year. So uh, it's probably not the best way to see ongoing risk. The, the, there's, risk comes in multiple categories. There's the risk of uh, the system, the environment, the, the, the tools that are, that are being used. There's also risk in human behaviors, and those behaviors can be my behaviors or they can be your behaviors. So when you mention ratting someone out, one, one of the elements that's necessary to create that trusted environment is to create a program or a system that has well-defined parameters so that employees know what they can expect. You may have a great boss today and talk to him at the Christmas party, but that boss is going to retire or get promoted or move on, and I'm going to have a new boss next year. And that person may or may not have the same relationship. So beyond the leadership skills, we help organizations put in the structure, the programs, and the systems to support reliability over the long term. So we have created these programs where people know what the conditions are when they report. 
and that when they report, they get a certain amount of response. They get validated, and then they get feedback on what, what's being done with that information. But pilots, Scott, still won't report UFOs, will they? <laughs> no, they will, actually. They will. Um, of course, oh, come they're going to be... I've seen a million interviews where they said, I couldn't tell anybody until 20 years later. Yeah, well, you're talking about the military. I'm talking about in the airline industry where we created the ASAP program. So when you create the right structure for people to come forward in the right conditions and you you do it transparently, people will, will come forward. But it takes a trusted system to get that kind of information. We only have a couple minutes left, Scott. What do you think of our thesis that entrepreneurs shouldn't uh, should reduce risk as much as possible? That that's what serial entrepreneurs do, and risk maybe shouldn't even be part of the definition of entrepreneurship. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I like I like the approach that you've taken, Jim. And there's a couple of things that I would uh, say about what what I think is your approach, and and that is understand risk, be risk intelligent, but don't always try to minimize it, try to manage it. So there are certain risks in life worth taking. And we take those risks knowing with our eyes wide open. That's the way to be an entrepreneur. Don't be risk averse, but be risk intelligent. And the second thing- What's a risk worth taking? Asking a pretty girl out? Well, certainly if that's, if that's, if that's a goal you have in life or that's one you find yourself attracted to, that could be a, a definite risk worth taking. Uh, during the, the COVID pandemic or the height of the COVID pandemic, we could have minimized uh, uh, patient safety by uh, closing the doors and not treating as many people. But we don't do that. We, we expand our capacity to manage people and risk when the needs require. So every situation will be different. Um, I know businesses that started up during the pandemic with some risk involved, but they did it because they were going to go manufacture personal protective equipment that the world needed. Uh, and there was whether there was a business case for it or not, uh, it was something that they were committed to doing. So there are places where you can go into a market, and as you, you know, I call what you, what I understand about your approach is, it's the philosophy of the second mouse gets the cheese. You don't always have to be the innovator. You don't always have to be the early bird. But if you go in minimizing your risk and, or at least managing your risk and then working hard and understanding what's ahead of you, you can be successful. And it doesn't take passion. doesn't take necessarily uh, a whole lot of risk. But if you go into it with your eyes open, knowing what, what risks are ahead of you, you, you'll likely get a better outcome. Well, first of all, Scott, I really appreciate you looking into my stuff. That's really kind and uh, good of you. Thank you so much for that. I don't necessarily think the second mouse gets the cheese. My first business uh, was an innovator, 100% an innovator. We just did it in a very low-risk way. We figured out a a trick to do that, so uh, we Mm -hmm. were able to reduce the risk. I don't sleep well at night if I'm feeling risky do you i mean isn't this all about sleeping uh, yeah certainly it is when when you when you lie awake at night and if you're worried about your mortgage and your family and and financial risk certainly um but there are places where you can go into a situation see and understand the risk and then know what risk we're taking 
and then you will sleep better at night because you've done your homework. Very well said. Scott, how do we find out more? Get a copy of the book, follow you online, uh, see the business website. The business website is uh, www.sgcpartners.com. And if you're interested in the book, you can go to the leaders guide to managing risk.com. You'll see it there. Fantastic. Scott, thank you so much and uh, appreciate what you're doing and really appreciate you making the airlines safer. Well, what are we going to do about all of the pissed off passengers who keep beating up the uh, other passengers and throwing stuff at the stewardesses? And I mean, the, uh, what are they called? Flight attendants. Uh, what's happened to airline equity or etiquette? Well, Anytime there are stressful, tense situations and you put humans together in a confined area, you're going to see results. I think that uh, if you're going to manage this, um, we have to figure out a way to provide the consequences for the behavior. Now, the Federal Aviation Administration does impose fines and sometimes other penalties to, to passengers who act unruly. but the, the the situation we've seen post-pandemic is that stress levels are high all the way around. So I don't know other than um, in, imposing those penalties after the fact. Uh, we can't really screen people ahead of the boarding process to know what their mindset is. But to the extent that we can follow through on those events that, that do take place, it, it should serve as a deterrent for other people to act out accordingly. Again, well said. Scott, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for the book, and I hope it sells well. My pleasure, Jim. Thank you for having me. We are out of time, but you know what we do. That's right. We come back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care and reduce your risk. Take care now. Bye. Bye.